Our speaker this morning, George Sinclair, is a dear brother and friend whom I hold in the highest respect. Twelve years ago, ten key pastors from across Canada gathered in our nation's capital, and that meeting was hosted by George at Church of the Messiah. George was converted in 1972, just shortly after I came to know Christ, and was ordained uh, to the ministry in 1985. Many of us are familiar with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and there's a character in that great book called Valiant for Truth. I believe that George is a 21st century version, Canadian version, of that famous char character. With his strong leadership and the leadership of another, a number of other key ind individuals, they played a significant role in the formation of the Anglican Network in Canada, a small group of evangelical Anglican churches that found it necessary to take a stand for the truth of the gospel of Christ. And this stand cost them dearly. They were persecuted. George serves with me on the Council of the Gospel Coalition here in our nation. He is the principal of Ryle Seminary in Ottawa, and he is a devoted disciple of the Lord Jesus. Would you please welcome George Sinclair. God bless you. I'm, I'm the one to blame for those really weird scripture passages which uh, we just read a few moments ago. Listen, just before I start, we need to pray. So if you just bow your heads in prayer for a moment, that would be just wonderful. Uh, Father, um, we give you thanks and praise uh, that you uh, sent your son uh, to die, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserved to die, that he died in our place, that he in his person bore all our sin and all our shame, and that after tasting all there is to taste of death on the third day, he rose triumphant, triumphing over death and over sin. And we give you thanks and praise that he proved that he really had died and risen from the dead, that he has ascended into heaven, and we give you thanks and praise that he will come again in glory one day. We ask, Lord, uh, that you would strengthen our hearts by your word, that the Holy Spirit would fall with gentle but deep power upon each one of us, uh, bringing your word very deep into our hearts so that you, Father, through your word, might rule in us, bringing us freedom and fruitfulness and wholeness. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. <laughs> in my church, you'd all be standing, and I'd ask you to be seated. And I almost said that. Please be seated. Um, uh, quite a few years ago, there was a, a fellow who was widowed, and uh, he had a couple of kids, and uh, he was able to get married again. And uh, so I was doing the wedding. And um, uh, his, he had a daughter. I think she was about 15. And usually when I'm doing wedding rehearsals, I tell the scripture readers they don't have to come, they don't have to rehearse it. Uh, but in this case, of course, she's going to be at the wedding rehearsal because it's her dad uh, getting married. And she insisted on getting up to practice reading the Bible as part of the wedding ceremony. So she gets up, and uh, the church was sort of almost, anyway, just not set up like this. There's like two or three little, two steps. And, uh, and the, the couple was going to be standing right there, and she came up and, and stood there, and she opened the Bible. And as only a uh, 15 or 16-year-old girl being very, very serious could, she opened the Bible very solemnly, and she said uh, the first reading of the Bible, of, of God's holy word, da 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 and she starts to read it. And then she's reading the few first words very, very solemnly, and then she slaps the Bible closed, looks up and says, I don't want to read this. I want to talk about me. I saw her father's face look completely and utterly shocked. She stopped, hops down the two steps, pecks him on the cheek, and said, don't worry, Daddy, I'll do it proper tomorrow. <laughs> and, and, she, and she did. So I feel a little bit like that 15 or 16-year-old girl because uh, John wants me to talk about me a little bit uh, before we look at the Bible, or as part of us looking at the Bible. And... Um, I'm an Anglican. Uh, I'm an Anglican, if you th <laughs> don't think of like most people in the Anglican Church of Canada. Uh, J.I. Packer was one of my friends. 
and so if you think of somebody like Jim Packer, I'm, I'm a Jim Packer type of an Anglican. And in 2002, the, um, the first sort of, if you don't know Anglican words, the Anglicanism is divided up into something called diocese, and the first diocese in the Anglican Church of Canada uh, made the decision that it would bless same-sex unions and marriages. I want to pause here before I go any further. Some of you might be thinking, oh man, of all the weeks to come to church, this is the week I come to church. And they're going to talk about gays and lesbians. They're going to talk about my friends. Maybe, in fact, this is the Sunday that your grandmother or your, your sister or your best friend finally convinced you to come to church. And you're just squirming there thinking, oh, dang, I knew I shouldn't have come. They're going to talk about these types of things. And uh, we all know that God hates gays. And now this old guy up at the front is going to prove it. So just before we go any further, I, I guess I want to say a couple of things. Um, the first one is, if you're here and you're thinking that, and I really, I'm, first of all, I, I, I know I can speak for John, that he's delighted that you're here. <laughs> if, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And I, I think, I'm, I'm sure I can speak for the evangelism pastor. He'd love to have your best questions and objections and be able to share with you about the Christian faith. So for what I'm going to say from now on, you need to understand this first and foremost. This is not an us versus them issue. And it's not a political issue. It is definitely not an us versus them issue. I cannot imagine that between this congregation and the next and the online congregation that there aren't people here who struggle with same-sex attraction and maybe don't even struggle with it but give in to it. And I can't imagine that there is a congregation of this size that doesn't have people who would identify as trans, at least secretly maybe, who believe that they've been born in the wrong body and feel that they need to go and act in a certain way to come at peace with their body. So this is not an us versus them issue. And uh, so I want you to understand that when I'm talking about it. And I guess the other thing is, uh, we all know, I mean, just about everybody in our culture knows that Christians think about sexuality very, very different than many, not very different than everybody, but different than many people in our culture. And so I'm going to talk about that in a moment. So this is, in a sense, if you're here sort of in that sort of mindset, at first feeling very stressed out about it, you still might be stressed out about it. Uh, but this is an opportunity to, for you to hear, actually, a little bit about how it is that Christians think about this issue. And, and I guess, I, I, you know, and with that, I, I want to say that I think once you hear what Jesus has to say about what it means to be a human being that's also sexual, that when you actually press in to what Jesus teaches, you will discover an out, the outline of sanity, wisdom, and grace. You will discover the outline of sanity, wisdom, and grace. And who doesn't want sanity, wisdom, and grace? That is something that we all want. And, and the other thing is, I'll say this several times if I remember throughout the sermon, uh, there's a, a fellow who wrote a hymn in the 17th century called My Song is Love Unknown. Some of you might know that old hymn. It was written by a man who was both an Anglican and a Puritan, believe it or not. And uh, he has this line, which I'm just going to change very slightly, which helps you to understand the gospel and how, this, how things like sexuality fit within the gospel. And that line is this. Love came and died for the loveless, that you might loved and loveless be. Love came and died for the loveless, that you might loved and loveless, sorry, loved and lovely be, not loved and loveless. <laughs> sorry, I wrote it down wrong in my notes. Love came and died for the loveless, that you might loved and lovely be. That's the gospel. So go back just briefly to my story before we look at the Bible texts. 2002, a diocese in the Vancouver area decided they would start to bless same-sex unions. At that time, there were no same-sex marriages allowed in the country. This had been, things had been leading up to something like that, and my wife and I had been thinking and praying about it, and 
we came to the conclusion that if that ever happened at a national level or within our own diocese, that we would have to resign, that we could not remain within a church body that did that. And over the next five years, there's all sorts of things going on at individual levels and national levels. And I made the decision uh, that it's just part of my normal teaching that I would start to prepare the, I don't want to go into all of the details of the story, but eventually the leadership and I decided that we would prepare the church uh, in the eventuality that would happen where we were in Ottawa. We, of course, continued to pray that the church would turn from it. Uh, three times in the book of Ezekiel, something along the lines of this is said, which is God takes no pleasure, no, God takes no delight in the death of a sinner but rather that he would turn from his wickedness and live. And so the call was always towards repentance, but we had to be prepared, which involved, of course, getting a lawyer. In 2007, in September, the Bishop of Ottawa attempted to fire me, and by God's grace and by human ingenuity, uh, he was stymied. Again, in November, he tried to fire me. And once again, by God's grace and human ingenuity, I was spared that because in August of 2000, October of 2007, my diocese became the second one in the country to not only bless same-sex unions, but also same-sex marriages. I had been quite outspoken about this issue. In fact, a very odd experience was the weekend paper. There used to be a Sunday paper in those days. Those of you who remember what newspapers are and when they came on Sundays as well. Uh, there was a, a Sunday paper reporting in a very, very big spread in the main paper, the only paper in Ottawa, the Ottawa Citizen, and there was a big picture of me <laughs> as the person speaking against it. And it was a very odd experience to be in the gay village of Ottawa buying a coffee at a coffee shop and I could see people looking at me as they looked from the picture to me waiting to get my coffee as the one who had spoken against it. In February, uh, we prepared our congregation to understand that if we were to, uh, to vote to separate from the Diocese of Ottawa, and because we wanted to remain as part of the Anglican, the, the godly Anglican communion, we would reconnect with another branch, ultimately in Argentina, believe it or not. And, um, but we warned them that the Diocese of Ottawa would come after us uh, like a blitzkrieg with a full court come down on us, and that we had to be prepared when we had the vote that we would lose everything. We'd lose our building, all of our financial assets. We had to be prepared to lose everything. <clears throat> so we voted on the 16th of February, 2008, 98% to leave. And we weren't sure, that was on a Saturday, we weren't sure if when we came to church on Sunday morning if the building would be locked because the diocese had taken possession of it. Now as it turned out, for a variety of reasons, because we had a lawyer, they didn't do that. We believed that we owned the building. In fact, if you went and did a title search, you would see who the owners of that property was, and the owners were the three trustees, me and the other, and two lay people, and we were the trustees who owned the building in trust for the congregation. But we immediately, of course, had legal threats. Eventually, us and the one other church that left, uh, we were sued on one level nominally for, well, not nominally, because they sued us to, for, for us to vacate the premises and to, to relinquish the property to them. And um, the lawsuit would have cost us to defend it one and a half million dollars to defend it. And the, uh, if you know anything about civil litigation when you're sued, uh, you only have winners and losers. They don't divide it up. And usually, the loser in civil litigation also has to pay the other person's legal costs. If the judge could go anything from 100% to, a, a, to some percentage, but we're now looking at a minimum of $2 million to $3 million if we lose. And so we desired to settle out of court. And because uh, when you settle out of court, you can have a division of assets. And so in the, uh, because of the strength of our legal case, we um, were able to negotiate a deal whereby we would have to change the name of our, because there was another church who left as well. Out of the 90 or so, 100 Anglican churches in our diocese, only two uh, had enough people who were willing to take a stand. And, um, and so part of the legal deal we were able to negotiate is that if we left our property, the other church could keep theirs. 
So we thought that was a win for the gospel. Our congregation voted for that 100%. The end of June 2011, joined with lots of well-wishers, we began our service sort of like you did, singing hymns, and then before there was a sermon or communion, we left the church singing, walked a block and a half away, and walked into the Ottawa Little Theatre, and walked away from our building. By the way, it's, it's the building that had several of the Fathers of Confederation attended. Sir John A. Macdonald's wife was a member of the church. And it's a beautiful old building, it's still there. One of the issues which you might know is that people will talk as if this is just about same-sex marriage, but it's not just about same-sex marriage. The diocese used its power to put in a, a new congregation there, call people from all over the diocese to come and to, to, to be a new congregation because nobody from our congregation stayed with the building, not one person. And so on June 30th, or whatever it is, we walked out of our building. That was 2011. I probably got the dates wrong, mixed up with you. But June 30th, 2011, we walked out of our building into the Ottawa Little Theatre, which is where we still meet on Sunday mornings. And um, at the end of August, because in August, the Gay Pride Parade is at the end of the last Sunday of August. In the last Sunday of August, the new congregation proudly and boldly announced that they would be part of the Gay Pride Parade, and in fact walked in the Gay Pride Parade, holding a big sign saying, St. Albans, the name of the church. So why on earth would I take such a stand? Is it because I'm homophobic or transphobic? Well, I don't think I am. At the end of the day, we did it because we think the Bible provides an outline of sanity, wisdom, and grace about what it means to be a sexual being and fully human, and that Jesus and all of the Bible speaks very, very clearly on this particular issue, so particularly clearly that we had to be willing to lose everything to follow Him. So what does he say? I've just choose, chosen Mark. If you have your Bibles, you'd like to turn to Mark chapter 7. Many people in, in the Christian world and in the Christendom world or post-Christendom world, many talking heads in radio and television will say that Jesus says nothing about this issue. They'll also say that whatever is said is very, very unclear. They'll say that God is love and so that anybody who interprets the Bible in a way that doesn't uh, agree with love is love is not speaking the way Jesus would speak, and Jesus says nothing. So is that, in fact, the case that Jesus says nothing? In fact, Jesus speaks about the issue more than in two places in each and all of the Gospels, but we'll just look at two. And when you look at these two things very briefly, two at one at each of them, you'll see that the entire building block of the understanding of what it means to be a sexual being and follow Jesus and what it means to be a sexual being and be fully human is, in fact, encapsulated by Jesus in these two places. So the first one is uh, Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 14 to 23. And uh, what's just gone on before this, if, of course, is there's been a question, interestingly enough, about the difference between human traditions and commandments that come from God. And it's talking about this particular issue uh, actually, we'll start reading in verse 14, and I'll make a comment about it. It begins like this. And Jesus called people to him again. He's just had a conflict with some people about this whole issue about what, what is human, what are mere human words, and what are words that come from God. Um, and, and by the way, actually, one of the things that we're going to see here is something which is very interesting, is that Jesus agrees with the new atheists on a very important point. New atheists... And many agnostics say that it's impossible for human words to capture God or to reach up to God. And so any attempt to even talk about it is ridiculous. And Jesus agrees with them. He agrees with your skeptical and new atheist friends. 
what he disagrees with is the question as to whether God could speak to us. <laughs> That's what Christians say. Christians don't say that we have better poets, better mystics, better philosophers, better theologians, people with better imaginations and, than our Hindu friends or our, our Muslim friends or our Buddhist friends. Christians don't say that at all. Christians say there's this remarkable thing that we have come to believe that God spoke to us and we're receiving it. And in fact, Jesus, as we're going to see in a moment, would say that, in fact, like, just like the new atheists and your skeptical friends say, that it's completely impossible for human beings to speak out of their own power in a way that would know or understand or comprehend God. Listen to what he says, verse 14. And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Um, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, just pause here. I'm not going to get into it because we don't have time. Um, the fact of the matter is that it's a very powerful, continuing human experience about feeling defiled or unclean. Canadians understand that concept. It's very interesting that God chose words that on this case had a bit of a ritual connotation that still resonate in almost every culture, understands uncleanness, that something happens that makes you feel unclean, that something happens that makes it feel like you have been defiled. Continue verse 17. And when Jesus had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, what he had just told earlier. And he said to them, then you are, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? It literally means it goes into the toilet. <laughs> Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For, 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 for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Now just pause here for a second. In the Bible, as you might or might not know, the heart isn't referring to the seat of the emotions. The Bible has a very different, in fact, a far wiser understanding of the human being. The heart is where the emotions come from, the imagination comes from, the will comes from, the intellect comes from, the memory comes from, all of those things come from the same place, and the Bible calls it the heart. In our culture, we sort of think there's the mind, and then there's the emotions, you know, and, and, and then there's the will, and they're all very separate. The Bible says they all come out of the same place, what the Bible describes as the heart. And so, you know, listen again to what he says for, from within, verse 21, out of the heart of man, and, and by the way, just, just to be clear about this, what he's going to say is that out of the heart comes that which defiles. You see, and that's why Jesus would agree with the new atheists that say that if, if, there, if the thing, if your mind and your will and what comes out of your mind and will is broken and causes evil, then what comes from out, that, that power can't possibly reach God. That, that power, you, that, the heart needs God to speak. Otherwise, it just can't work. And, and listen to what comes out of the inside of a person. The first one is sexual immorality, in my version. Now, here's the key thing. In the original language, it's the word pornea. And um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, and uh, if those, those of you who know, know it better, I apologize. But um, the Bible has this very, very powerful... Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll encapsulate it with these three sentences. Um, th this main sentence here, that any sexual knowing where sexual stimulation outside of the marriage relationship between one biological male with one biological female is sin. You know what, I've had to write it in such a way that it reflects 2022. <laughs> I'll say it again. By the way, if you're curious about this, I didn't have it written in time. Uh, I'll, I'll send it to the church if, you, if you're curious to, to get my wording again later on. If you're not, that's fine. But pornea is, this, is teaching this, that any sexual knowing or sexual stimulation outside of the marriage relationship between one biological male with one biological female is sin. That's what pornea means. Now, within that, it means that if you are here today and you're watching heterosexual pornography, that's pornea. 
If you are a wife and you cheat on your husband, that's porneia. If you are unmarried and you have sexual knowing outside of marriage, that's porneia. If you are a man and you have sexual knowledge of another man, that's porneia. It's a very simple teaching that touches every single human being. And so, and given that the porneia word group is very common in the New Testament, and it's beyond the scope of my talk to say that the porneia word group captures, most scholars will acknowledge, the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. This is a common teaching of the Bible from the New Testament, from Genesis, from Old Testament to New Testament. A very simple common teaching, and there's a flip side to it. I've described it in terms of sin. There's a positive side to it because there's a positive vision. We'll see it more in the next verse, but the positive vision is this. When single, and I said when single, some people are single and never married. I don't know how John, how long John, I can't remember your name right now, I'm sorry. John and his better half have been married, but they, they didn't emerge from the womb married. <laughs> they, they were single for, for quite a few years. And unless Jesus comes back, one of them will predecease the other and the other will be single again. So when single, the triune God calls you to a free, fruitful, faithful life that includes abstinence from sexual knowing. When single, the triune God calls you to a free, fruitful, faithful life that includes abstinence from sexual knowing. To be single is not to be handicapped, unlike what is taught basically in our culture today, where you aren't fully human unless you're having regular sexual knowing experiences. I mean, in a sense, this modern teaching dehumanizes most of us reducing us to mere urges. And yet, for many in our culture, we've lost the grammar and the ability to talk. On one level, we feel that that can't be the case, that just because I'm not inv involved in a sexual relationship that I'm, I'm, I'm not fully human, but it's so common in our culture. And you see, that's why if, as, as you press into the biblical teaching, you'll see that it's an outline not just of sanity, but also of wisdom and grace. And then there's something for the married. When married, the marriage covenant between a, my, a biological male and a biological female is the invention of the triune God who has created and sustains all things. And he calls the couple to a freeing, fruitful, faithful life together. That's what the Bible teaches. When Jesus uses the porneia word group, he is opening the window to what the Bible teaches from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to the very end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. That porneia word group captures it. It is the doorway into it. We'll just continue, and you'll see very here clearly it says that when we desire something other, when we desire sexual knowing or sexual stimulation outside of the marriage relationship between one biological male with one biological female, that what that describes is sin when we do that. And then there are a variety of ones. I'll just continue. If you look at verse 21 again, the evil thoughts, the sexual immorality, theft, it's obvious, murder. Adultery is now adding a specific one an aspect of porneia, coveting, wickedness, deceit, and I just want to mention in particular this one, sensuality. And what sensuality means in this particular context is the sexualizing of human relationships. See, one of the reasons why the Bible is the, the, the original, ongoing, true sexual revolution is that whether it was addressing Philistine culture, Ammonite culture, or the culture of Hamilton today, it is constantly calling human beings back to, to sanity, wisdom, and grace. And one of the things that we see in our day and age is the sexualization of children, the sexualization of, of relationships. It's a, and and the Bible, that's what the Bible describes as a sin of sensuality. And it only causes heartache. 
all these things, and then it says slander, pride, and foolishness. Verse 23, all these things come from within, and they defile a person. I have to watch my time, and I'm going to have some trouble with it, but I want to say one thing here, especially to those of you who are guests here or those who have been struggling with this particular issue, and this sounds like a very bleak description of human life, that out of the human heart these things come. Now, the Bible isn't saying that only bad things come out of our lives. That would be ridiculous. But it is saying that it isn't as if the world is divided between the good people and the bad people. It is saying that the line between good and evil goes right through every particular human being. And that, in fact, the evil that you do comes from within you, fundamentally and primarily. Now, if you think this is very hard and ridiculous, I just want to ask you three types of questions. If you met somebody who said that their eight-year-old was perfect, had never done anything wrong. By the way, if you're here and you're a school principal or vice principal, you've met those parents. And I can tell you, I bet every vice principal or principal here would get up and agree with what I'm about to say. The parent who says their kid is perfect is one of the worst kids in the school. Why is it we would all laugh if we met a person who really, and, and at first we'd just laugh, but then you think, no, 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 really, 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 my kid is perfect. I'm like, I've been raising a perfect kid. None of you would believe it. Why? Well, because you know that the heart is the source of evil. If you were watching a science fiction movie and the people come to a place that seems like a utopian community, what does every viewer know? It is hiding evil because there is no utopian community. And why is it that every disaster film, as soon as it looks as if people are about to die and the earth is about to come to an end, what is revealed is not massive prayer meetings and charity, but raping, pillaging, and murder. Because everybody knows that what Jesus just says right here is true. Even if the educational and psychological and many theological and spiritual and spiritual guidance communities try to deny it, this is true. And it's true in a context that's not depressing because love came and died for the loveless that you might loved and lovely be. Very, very quickly. Let's just look at, uh, at Mark chapter 10. And by the way, I'm not dodging, t you know, I, I have a, a, not much time to talk about a very big issue. If you're curious about how I talk about divorce, I preached a sermon on this a couple of weeks ago. It's easy to find in my series on Mark. It's called Jesus and Divorce. So I'm not dodging an issue. We just don't have time to go into it. But here's the other aspect of the human heart and about sexuality. We'll begin at verse 1. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and, and in order to test him, asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered, well, what did Moses command you? And they answered, Moses allowed. That's part of how you have to understand the text. What did he command? They don't answer by what he commanded. They answer by what he allowed. <laughs> Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send him away. And Jesus said to them, here's this, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is quoting from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Now, a, a couple of things here. You'll notice here that he talks about the hardness of our human heart. See, early on, if you're still with me, when I said that this is not a story of us versus them, but of us, it's because I stand before you as a man with a hard heart. I stand before you as a man whose heart will continue to defile me. Evil comes from my heart. Obviously not every single thing I do, but that's what comes from me. That's why I need a savior. See, the point of this teaching isn't 
that we can point our fingers at others. Sorry, I pointed at that section. Nothing personal, I just happen to be right-handed. <laughs> Except we all know that's the bad section of the church. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, if you come to my services, every time I mention a fellow, I use Bob, and every time I mention a woman, I name Sue, and I occasionally apologize to people named Bob and Sue. I, I did it, I do it because I, once I, I let a name of a real person slip, and so ever since then, I just, every guy in a story is Bob, and every woman in a story is Sue. It just sort of makes it simple, Bob and Sue, you know? And uh, if there has to be two guys, uh, you know, anyway, never mind. Well, don't, you don't need to hear all of this, this crazy uh, stuff. Uh, you know, so one of the things that happens in marriage counseling, by the way, it, which is why the, the Bible teaches, we haven't got to the wisdom and the grace yet, but part of the wisdom is the fact that when I married Louise, I married a woman who has a hard heart. And when she married me, she married a man with a hard heart. And when you start to understand that boy, you start to understand the need for Jesus. And you understand the need for repentance and forgiveness and grace and a community that will help you when your hard heart is really beating up your spouse. You know, this, 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 look, at, look at what he says again here, just these last few words, um, verse 6, 7, and 8. But from the beginning of creation, that is before human beings fell, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then listen to this other thing, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It implies that even, you have to capture this, that that means that when our Muslim friends marry, the triune God is involved in their marriage. When our Buddhist friends marry, the triune God, whether recognized or not, is involved in their marriage. When your atheist friends Mary, the triune God, whether they recognize him or not, is involved in their marriage. You see, one of the things to think about when you're trying to defend this Christian viewpoint and to see the wisdom of it is this. Ask yourself, ask your friend this, if they think the biblical teaching is crazy. Is sexual knowing more like going into a playground or into a temple? I got this from Glenn Scrivener, by the way. I didn't think of it myself. When you're talking about sexual knowing, is it more like going into a playground or into a temple? Now, when I've asked my skeptical friends this, they know they're caught. And some of them say, well, it's more like a playground. And I said, oh, really? So if your sister is going to work in a restaurant and the owner decides to fondle her breasts and pat her on the bum, that's fine. Deer in the headlights. Because you see, we know that it's more like a temple, which is exactly what the Bible here is describing. See, the average Canadian, whether they know it or not, is on the Christian side of the plain ground, on, this, on, the, on the plain field in this issue. But they're in rebellion against acknowledging it. You see, this text describes both the fact that marriages can struggle and that they can also be so unbelievably glorious. It describes why it is that we understand that there is something both, of course, merely physical and biological, but there's something transcendent. Only Jesus and the Scriptures make your intuitions and your long longings clear. Only Jesus. So, George, why is this, this on one level, sorry, I mean, it all sounds nice. Oh, I, I, just want, I need to say this one thing, sorry. And, and one other caveat, if, uh, if for those of you who are here who struggle with believing that you're in the wrong body, I have not had that experience, at least not in the sense that you have, and I, it must be unbelievably difficult. But what I want to tell you is this, 
the triune God created and sustains human beings as either a biological male or a biological female. In other words, man or woman. Say it again. The triune God created and sustains human beings as either a biological male or a biological female. In other words, man or woman. And Jesus redeems you to be at peace with your biological sex. Jesus redeems you to be at peace with your biological sex. If you struggle with this and you're a Christian, you should share it with some others and you should pray that the, Bible, the gospel will become more real to your heart. And if you are here and you struggle with it and have you not given your life to Jesus, I can tell you that Jesus, what did I say earlier? Love came and died for the loveless that you might loved and lovely be. That includes those of you who struggle with being in the wrong body. Love came and died for the loveless that you might loved and lovely be. Why did I leave the Anglican Church and why were we willing to have a 100% vote to lose our building? If you say that the triune God blesses sin, you are in proud defiance and rebellion against the triune God. The Bible is very clear, and if you say that the triune God blesses sin, you are in proud defiance and rebellion against the triune God, and you are cutting people off you are cutting people off from how they can loved and lovely be. They will not be loved and lovely. They will not. What is it prosper a church to keep their building or their denomination and forfeit their soul and no longer be able to proclaim the gospel? See, Jesus knows that your heart is hard and defiling, and still he loved you and died for you and desires that you will allow him to be your Savior and Lord. Now, I, John gave me, I have five minutes, six minutes. I don't count my closing prayer. <laughs> I warned John in advance. The opening prayer and the closing prayer don't count for the time I'm allowed. That's not sermon, it's the prayer, right? Makes sense. If you, any of you have watched The Sixth Sense, that movie from quite a few years ago, you'll know that at the very end of the movie, with about a minute left in the movie, there's a revelation that changes all of the heartbreak and the sadness of the entire movie before it. And the same thing is happening. This Mark is writing a story. It begins with verse 1, and it will go on to chapter, chapter 1, verse 1. It goes on to chapter 16. He's telling a story. And at the end of the story, there's a, a something that happens that changes everything in the story. And I'm not going to quote it. You can go back and look it up. It comes up in the garden. There's, there's several things that are hints to it because it, Jesus makes it very clear. Even when he's telling you all these teachings, he doesn't make this teaching about, about the hardness of our heart and that which defiles and about porneia and, 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 and about all these other things to depress us. He doesn't, make us to, doesn't say that to belittle us. He tells us all of these things because the fact of the matter is, I need a savior. And, 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 and so he's going to Jerusalem to die, and there's these very different images, but at the, at right towards the end, there's this very, very powerful image that comes up, and it's when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he asks the Father to, take, if possible, take the cup from him. And of course, Jesus, the Father says, I, in a sense, in heaven, I've heard your prayer, the cup is yours to take. And Jesus goes to die the next day, and when you see Jesus dying upon the cross, in a sense, what you are seeing him take is the cup. Now, what is that cup? Once again, for those of you who have watched fantasy movies or read fantasy novels, one of the features often happens in fantasy novels, it's one of the ways, actually, that fantasy novels can help us to understand some of this biblical imagery. Interestingly, not even though it's not done, it's, it, in a sense, comes out of a collective type of unconscious, and they, re, they misinterpret it, but we can look at it and say, and, and, and what, here, here's the image. Like if you've watched The Witcher, 
and the, 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 one of the main villains wants to try to capture evil. And, and the way it's captured is, in a sense, it takes evil out of others. And you see this, this thing with the, the whirling and all of that, and it becomes this black, foul liquid that comes into a cup. And of course, because it's not the gospel and they don't understand things, there's many people in our culture that think that evil makes you stronger, but we know that evil only destroys you. It only destroys you. It might make you cruel, but cruel isn't strong. Cruel is weak. And so the image here is in a sense, if you could imagine that Jesus comes and before the cross, he takes you and he takes you. And all of the evil and all of the shame in your life is pictured as a foul black liquid. And all of the evil in me is pictured as a foul black liquid that comes out of me and into that cup, and out of you and into that cup, and out of you, Brother John, and into that cup. And when you see Jesus dying on the cross, he drinks that cup that contains your evil and yours and yours and mine. And he drinks it and he dies. That's what he does on the cross. So that when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you're accepting that he drank that cup for you. Why did he do it? He did it because love came and died for the loveless, that you might loved and lovely be. And he takes you as his own, and he continues to deal with the evil within and help you to deal with it. But most of all, he is preparing and fitting you. See, he doesn't just drink the cup. The righteousness that was his becomes your clothing change. The powerful image, the evil from within is the cup that he drinks. His righteous clothing becomes yours. And this time between your conversion until you see him face to face is that process whereby his clothing describes more and more who you are in all of its freedom and faith and, and fruitfulness and the evil which so binds and describes and, dis and, dis and dis dismembers you is continually removed and reduced. And that is why the Bible in Jesus' teaching is an outline of sanity, wisdom, and grace. I'd like to invite you all at this time to stand. You've been sitting for a while. I want to invite you to stand and bow your heads in prayer. And just before we do, if there are any here who have never given their life to Jesus, what I'd like you to say is just listen to me for a few more seconds and then stop listening to me and do some work with Christ. But if you have never given your life to Christ, there is no, no better time than right now and if you're the type who uses imagination to just say, Jesus, drink that foul stuff from within me, thank you so much that you did that on the cross. Please drink the cup of my evil and please clothe me with your righteousness that I might, you might be my Savior and Lord from this moment now and forever. And I just want to urge you, there's no magic words to say that prayer. And if you do say that prayer, to speak to Pastor John or some of the people who've been up front and let them know just because they'd love to, sh to share the joy of your conversion with you, not so they notch things or feel more proud, but they'd just love to be able to bless you and, and help you. And if you are here and you have been struggling with some of these issues, you're a Christian and God's Spirit has been pressing in upon you, then one of the things you need to do is just pray that the gospel becomes more real to your heart and ask that um, you, you trust him that as you trust his word, he's only going to make you better. The more he has a role and place in your life, the more the gospel becomes real to you, the more you will know fruitfulness and freedom. 
And so there's no time better. In fact, one of the reasons we gather on Sunday is to say, Lord, it's been a terrible week. <laughs> Thank you so much that I can come and be remembered and reminded of the gospel. <laughs> and go and face the rest of this week knowing that, Jesus, you are my Savior and Lord. And that what? That you are love and that you came and died for the loveless that I might loved and lovely be. Just bow our heads in prayer. Father, I ask that you would gently but powerfully pour out the Holy Spirit upon all of those who are here at this time, that you would make the gospel more real to their heart, that you would make the gospel more real to my heart, uh, that your word would have a, a greater role in our lives. Father, we ask you for this. We, we ask, Lord, that you help us to grow in the knowledge and trust that when you speak to us through your word, it is sanity coming from your word. It is wisdom and grace coming from your word. And so we ask, Lord, that, uh, that, that, would, that you would do that gentle but powerful and wonderful work in our lives. And, uh, and we ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You'll notice here that the candle is lit this morning, and it's lit because someone on Thursday night at Alpha gave their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise God for this. George has extended an invitation to anyone here today if you would like to inquire about how you can receive Christ and experience this wonderful thing where Jesus takes that which is foul out of us and washes it completely clean and takes it all away. And if you would like to speak to me, I'm going to ask our other pastors just to be available here at the front or with George, then we invite you to come at the end of the service. Please speak to us. It would be a great joy for us to help you in this because someone else helped us to do the same. This is the last Sunday of our 50th anniversary celebrations. No one who founded, who was an original founder of West Highland 50 years ago would have dreamt at that time that we are in the cultural moment that we are in today with this great confusion of sexuality. It wasn't on anyone's radar at all. But this is the cultural moment in which we find ourselves. It is the moment in which God is calling us to be faithful to him and to his word. We have heard a prophetic word today. It's a word that we need to respond to with all of our hearts. This is the gospel. This is what we believe. This is what the scriptures teach. This is what the triune God has given us as a wonderful thing. The complementarianness of, of male and female joined together as one. And so this is an issue upon we must, we must stand. We must stand for this truth. And we must be faithful to God in whatever many years, however many years God has for us as a local church. To be faithful, valiant for the truth in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And so may the God who saved us, the God who redeemed us through Jesus Christ, the God who has given to us the very righteousness of Jesus, may he equip us with everything good for doing his will. To him be the praise, the honor, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.